before I begin, I want to add one quick announcement that I was just reminded of this morning. Um, I think John had intended to announce it, and amidst all the things that he had to announce, he had forgotten about it. But, but Mark Ratliff reminded me to tell you that men on this week, the men's prayer meeting begins to happen on Tuesday mornings, not Monday mornings. And so for, for all of you men who have been longing to come to the 7 a.m. prayer meeting, but you couldn't because Monday morning was not the time for you, Tuesday now meet, might be that time. So, so come and meet with us on Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. in the church office, and we will pray together for uh, not just each other, but for the needs of the church that God has provided for us. If this statement is true that we just read together, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. If that statement is true, and we believe together that it is, then you will have ground to stand on as we think about these words that Jesus had for a large crowd of interested listeners. He has at this point in Luke's gospel named now His 12 apostles, the 12 who would follow along with Him most closely And now he explains to some more listeners what his kingdom will mean for all who follow those followers. There is a path that believers will walk together. And here Jesus marks it out for us, beginning in verse 17 of Luke 6. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we ask once again that you would give to us understanding by the work of your spirit in our minds, and our hearts, and our souls. Would you work down deep so that we would recognize the beauty of your gospel in these difficult words. Help us, Lord, to to wrestle with these truths that Jesus has presented to us here in your word and that we might change, Lord, that we might indeed follow this path together as one in the church, walking after your followers as they followed you. We pray you would do these things for us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. About 10 years ago in 2007, it was February, a late night talk show host opened his talk show with a monologue, which is, of course, characteristic of those if you watch such things. 
But the monologue that he delivered on that particular night was one that his audience was not expecting. Craig Ferguson was the the talk show host, and it wasn't the late show. It was the late, late show, which therefore I've never watched. Because even though I'm a night owl, I like to stay up late. I don't stay up late, late, typically. And so I didn't see it at the time. But it came to my attention. Maybe some of you have watched that late, late show before. But Craig Ferguson is a comedian and talk show host. He's a funny guy with his sarcasm. And and he offered this monologue that his, his audience did not expect on that day. His bread and butter in comedy, at least in this, the monologues of this late, late show, was to mock celebrities and people of power, to make fun of them, to, to highlight their failures and their foibles and, and their troubles for all to, to laugh at. And, and he did that quite well. He was very good with that kind of sarcasm. And that particular week in February of 2007, a particular female celebrity had splashed onto the headlines of the newspapers across the country and places that would pay attention to such things because of her drug and alcohol troubles. It had become quite severe for her. And the audience expected an easy target. You know, we're going to have a lot of mockery and fun at her expense together because this sarcastic and And mocking comedian is going to make lots of fun of her and we'll all have a good laugh. They expected that. But he came on the stage and he acknowledged her troubles and then he refused to mock her. He would not do it. He said, because this past weekend I celebrated the 15-year mark of my own sobriety. I'm an alcoholic, he said. A recovering alcoholic. And he told his story. He, He explained that on a particular Christmas night, Christmas Eve night in London, he had gone out to a bar and he had gotten drunk. And he had woken up the next morning having not remembered where he was. He wasn't quite sure where he was. He was even soaked in his own urine. He had become so out of control that night. And he woke up in a strange place and he began to gather his bearings and realized that he was in the upstairs part of the bar where he had been the night before. And he walked downstairs, thinking in his head, this has gone too far. I'm just going to go out to the London Bridge, climb up to the top of it, and jump off and put myself out of my misery. That was his plan at the moment. But as he walked through the downstairs part of the bar, the bartender, who had slept behind the bar himself, was up and stirring and noticed the man walking through. And he stopped him and he said, where are you going? And he said, I'm, I'm going home. He lied. And the man said, oh, you can't go home. It's Christmas Day. There's no transportation. There are no taxis. There are no buses. Nothing's running. It's Christmas Day. You can't go. You might as well stay here with me and have a glass of sherry. He offered him a glass of sherry, and the man accepted. And the two men got drunk together on Christmas Day. And he said that that glass of sherry actually saved his life because it caused him to forget his plans to go out and kill himself. And he eventually called a friend and said, I have a problem. I need to go to rehabilitation. Will you help me? And his friend said, I've been expecting you to acknowledge this problem sometime. And here we go. Let's go to rehabilitation. And so he did. He went to, to rehab. And, and his rehab, after a month of rehab, sent him out and said, you're not fixed. You've got a problem. And this is going to be a lifelong trial for you. You have a disease. And so he told his audience, as they kind of squirmed a bit, wondering, when should we laugh? Because this is supposed to be funny. And he told his audience, he said, look, if you have an addiction like I have, then you have a disease. 
And you have a responsibility to deal with and get help for your very serious problem. The audience was not quite sure what to make of this monologue. They had come expecting him to give them the ease of jokes and humor and sarcasm and mockery. But what they got instead was a lecture on the seriousness of life itself. Ferguson was maybe unwittingly actually borrowing from the pages of Luke chapter 6. Because this is something similar to what Jesus has done right here in what we've just read. He's just named the 12 apostles, his, his followers, and we're to follow them, walking together in the gospel path. But now, Luke tells us, a great crowd of disciples, a great multitude of people has come expecting to be intrigued by his teaching, expecting to experience his healing for their physical maladies, expecting even to be cured of unclean spirits. And they did get these things, Luke tells us. He says, all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. But Jesus then says to them in so many words, what I really have for you is something more. Not the ease of a life made better, but rather the seriousness of discipleship. He says, if you're going to follow those who follow me, then it's a very serious and hard path that you will walk in this community called the church. You have among you tax collectors, like Matthew, and zealots, like Simon, people who don't naturally get along. You have among you, the, the conservatives and the liberals. You have among you the jocks and the nerds. You have among you men and women and black, white, and brown, and more. You have among you such diversity of human beings that you're going to have a hard time together. With all of our differences, how are we to become a true community? By finding common ground in the blessings and the warnings that the gospel brings to all of us. What does it bring? It brings to us unconventional blessings. Unconventional blessings. With, with this crowd milling about, looking for a moment, their moment to shine, so to speak, with this celebrity teacher and healer, Jesus, Luke tells us, lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he began to preach. The first full sermon that Luke really provides for us, at least as far as Luke gives the content of a sermon, in his gospel account, and it is, you will recognize, Luke's version of the Beatitudes. Matthew provides what's probably the more famous version, the longer version of Beatitudes, blessed listings of of things. Matthew provides that for us. Luke gives us only four of the nine blessings that Matthew provides for us in his account. And whether it's actually the same preaching occasion is not really clear It might be, but it it really more probably isn't. Because, you know, very often an itinerant preacher like Jesus would preach the same content in different sorts of ways, in different times and places with different audiences. And I'm sure that he preached these words a number of different times. And Luke records his version of it. But either way, what Jesus gives here is a picture of life as a disciple. It's a picture of what God calls blessed. And it is entirely unconventional, isn't it? We would expect a list more like this, something that would be more palatable, not just to us, but to our broader culture. We would expect a list to say, blessed are you who are kind, 
because kindness will return to you. Or blessed are you who are generous because it will be repaid to you double. Or blessed are you who are creative because you will be noticed. Or blessed are you who are beloved by many friends all around you because you will enjoy a long life. We would expect the list to be something like that. And that would be very agreeable to this. And in all of those are good things. But no, that's not what God gives here because God's notion of being blessed is entirely different because of the kingdom coming circumstances in which Jesus worked. The word is makarios. That's the, the Greek word for blessed here that Luke uses and Matthew uses. Makarios, it means blessed and fortunate and happy. But the, the concept of it is bigger than that throughout Scripture. The concept of it indicates that those who are blessed in the Bible are those who are favored by God. I mean, you see this in the Old Testament, too. In the first Psalm, Psalm 1, we get a picture of it. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. This one is blessed. This is what it looks like to be blessed, to be favored by God, even and maybe especially when this world makes it hard. Why does the world make it hard? Because this blessed person has intentionally determined to cast his or her lot, as it were, with Jesus. And so it's unconventional. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor. Now, many of these people that are listening to Jesus give this sermon would have known poverty. They would have known material poverty. In that day, the the economic structure of society was different than it is as we know it, and there were certainly more of a percentage of people who knew poverty and much less of a percentage of people who knew wealth in that day. And if there were wealthy people, they were probably either tax collectors or Romans. Most of these Galileans wouldn't have known wealth, and so it's a very reasonable word picture for Jesus to use. And Scripture certainly makes it very clear to us that God is attentive to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan. But being materially poor is not a reasonable goal for the Christian life. You know that, don't you? Because while lacking abundance can sometimes make it easier to recognize your need for God, the state of being poor is not a blessing. It's no more of a ground for God's blessing than anything else might be. In fact, the wisdom of Proverbs 30 tells us very clearly, the proverb tells us, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what I need. If I'm poor, I may steal and dishonor the name of God. Material poverty poses a danger for your soul because you have a spiritual condition that requires healing far beyond physical disease or any such thing that this crowd came to find healing for. He or she is blessed who recognizes their poverty of spirit. I think it was Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher in London in the 1800s, who one day walking on the sidewalk in London met a woman who had heard him preach, and she cornered him and with a finger in his face rebuked him. She called him a liar and a scoundrel and all kinds of harsh criticisms to his face and Word is that Spurgeon received her criticism and his response was, Ma'am, 
if you only knew the half of it. That's poverty of spirit. And blessed is the one who recognizes the poverty of their spirit. Jesus goes on. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, if you know poverty, then you naturally know hunger. Those two things, materially speaking, tend to go hand in hand. And certainly, physically, they do. But it also comes along in regard to your career, to your daily life. If you think of it this way, if you follow professional sports at all, you've heard this sort of scenario unfold. There's a young player who's just come into the league, whatever league it is, and, and the coaches will say, this one is hungry He's hungry for success. He's hungry to, to win. He's hungry to play or whatever he's hungry for. But eventually, after a couple of years or so, when it time, comes time for him to have had some success and he, quote, gets paid, he gets the big contract, there's always a, a danger of him losing his, quote, hunger, right? Because he's now been paid. He's achieved, maybe in part, what he was after, maybe in whole what he was after, he's found some success, some fame, and he thinks what he's after is actually satisfaction, but the reality is it never comes for him because he's not hungering for the right things. Jesus is saying that you are blessed if you hunger for the right things, if you hunger for righteousness. So when you recognize in your own heart a lack of zeal for the beauty of God's kingdom, It should create in you a pang of hunger. Hunger for that zeal. When you recognize in your own heart a gratification that comes from putting other people down, it should create in you a pang of hunger. Hunger for repentance. And when you recognize in your own heart a comfort with certain elements of darkness, you know what I'm talking about, then it should create in you a hunger for righteousness instead. But that hunger should go beyond yourself. You know, it shouldn't just stop with you. It should go further than that. When you notice that a kid in your class at school has become the easy object of ridicule for the other kids in the class, then you should hunger for love and for peace for that classmate. When you recognize and read that the country of Iceland, as as I read recently, has almost eliminated Down syndrome from their population by means of prenatal screening followed by abortion in necessary cases, that should cause you to hunger. I mean, it should, should create a pang of hunger in the depths of your soul for justice and mercy. And when you see white Americans reverting to the old tactics of intimidation, marching with torches and chanting things like, Jews will not replace us. And that in the name of so-called white supremacy. That should cause you to hunger. That should create in the depths of your souls a pang so painful that it drives you to hunger after repentance and humility. Blessed are you who hunger now for righteous things. And then blessed are you who weep now, Jesus says, for you shall laugh. Of course, not all who weep are blessed. I mean, we've all 
heard the stories and seen politicians who got caught with their hands in the proverbial cookie jar, and now they're, they're weeping tears because of their conviction, not of heart, but of law, and now they're having to face the consequences of their action. That kind of weeping is not blessed. There's nothing blessed about that kind of thing. It's not what Jesus is saying here, but rather mourning and sorrow over the broken state of this world is surely blessed. And when Jesus arrived at the home of Mary and Martha, the sisters whose brother Lazarus had died, they had informed him, John tells us Jesus wept. And in Psalm 126, the writer is remembering the recovery of captives from Babylon, from from Israel's exile, and the writer says this, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Do you ever feel heavy of heart when you read the news? Does it ever cause you to feel pain in your soul? When you read that just this past week, 30 people in India were killed in street riots. Why? Because a popular religious leader was convicted of rape in a court of law, convicted of rape, and his zealous followers rioted in the streets, killing people in their path. That should cause you to weep. Lord, come quickly. And when you read all the accounts that are so common, it seems nowadays, of refugees fleeing oppression in North Africa who are abandoned at sea by those they paid to take them to safety, you should weep. Your soul should feel the depth of the pain of such circumstances. Lord, come quickly. I mean, I really think more and more that the older you get in Christ, the more sensitive your soul should be to such things. And you'll weep more often. And Jesus goes on, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of me. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, I think that on this one, Christians today in our country should be kind of careful with this one because this one maybe is stirred up a little bit too quickly among us. I mean, I think that very, very often, too often, and too easily, the so-called conservative talking heads of our culture will stir up the Christian base to think that those evil pagans out there are going to come and get you because you're so righteous And I kind of wonder sometimes if if that's not because Christians just haven't learned to love well and maybe have often brought it upon ourselves. But nonetheless, Jesus did tell his disciples, he said, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. If you belonged, he says, to the world, then it would love you as its own. But you don't. And that's why it hates you, he tells his disciples. In other words, if you've allied yourself with Jesus, then you have allied yourself against the world. That is inevitable. So here are these four unconventional blessings, so to speak. But don't miss the point about them. I think one important point for them is this. Don't go seeking poverty and hunger and mourning and hatred. Don't go seeking after those things. In fact, you won't need to. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ then these things will find you in due time. And when they do, what does Jesus say? Rejoice. Leap for joy. Why? Because it's proof that the gospel is at work in your life. And that's a beautiful thing. 
so Luke gives this list of blessings. It's only half of Matthew's, and maybe it's because Luke then goes on to present a list of warnings, the polar opposite to these blessings, and these warnings are uncomfortable. There are four woes that Jesus gives here, four woes, and a woe is a word that we don't often use, maybe in our own vocabulary, but it's definitely a scriptural word. In the book of Revelation, chapter 8, John, in his great vision of the apocalypse, sees a picture of, and, and he hears with his ears, an eagle flying above, and this eagle is crying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And, and the, the scenery continues, and John sees these three scenes unfold as the trumpets blow, and they're different scenes of, of, of potential judgment coming. They are warnings to repent. And in the same way, Luke lists these woes, not as outright judgments against such people, not yet anyway, but certainly as uncomfortable warnings. What does he say? He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, like poverty, material riches can pose real danger for your soul. Proverbs 30, again, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what I need. If I have too much, I may disown God and say, Who is the Lord? That may happen, and that's a real danger of material riches. And yet, you read the pages of Scripture, it doesn't take you long to recognize that God often blesses His sons and daughters with material riches. The list is a long one. Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon. In the New Testament, you find Zacchaeus the tax collector. And you find Lydia, the businesswoman from Philippi, the dealer in purple cloth who was evidently a successful businesswoman. These are various people, and they're not all. There were others among the early disciples of Jesus who had money, who had riches that God had given to them. And yet, riches can be dangerous. Just this past week, a friend of mine from high school posted on social media these words. He said, I want to be the Powerball winner whose life it didn't ruin. He didn't win it. So he didn't get a chance to show that he would be that person. Someone else did, I suppose. And, you know, he recognized, I think, what we all do as we read Scripture, that material wealth requires wisdom, that leads to humility, that produces generosity. I mean, Jesus would soon say to his disciples, to whom much is given, much is required. And from, from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The danger of riches is that it can lead to the second warning, which is, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who are full now. In other words, to you who are comfortable. To you who consider that your immediate physical needs have been satiated and you need no other thing. Now, that might sound a little bit like something that's really a godly and wonderful thing, contentment. Does it sound like contentment a little bit to you? Woe to you who are full now, who are comfortable, who don't, who don't require anything else at all. But it's not godly contentment. It is rather ungodly self-sufficiency. I mean, this is someone who says, I don't need anything else, and I sure don't need God. Churches can get to be this way, you know? 
Do you realize that? You know, whole, whole bodies of, of congregations, churches, often come to be this way. I, I've had an email exchange with some other pastors, as I often do, in a conversation about some questions some guys are raising about some, some things that they were trying to change in their relatively young churches, three, four, five years old into a church plant. And they'd seen some things in their worship service that they wanted to adjust and change. And they were coming upon some kickback from people in the congregation. No, we can't do that, Pastor. Don't, please don't do that. Does that mean we're now going to do this? And the conversation went on. How, how do we do this? What do we do with this? And how do we kind of diagnose this problem? And one of the guys chimed in who's at a very old church, a hundred-year-old church, very old for this country anyway, and he said, you know, I'm really fascinated by this. How is it that you guys in these younger churches are finding kickback about trying to make a change in your worship service? And we all finally concluded it just really doesn't take long at all to dig pretty deep ruts under the wheels of your wagon. I mean, you do something for a year and you change it and you've got to have a pretty good reason for doing it. That's just kind of how we corporately work as a body. As people, we kind of follow our comfortable path, the path of least resistance, perhaps. It just doesn't take long to get there. Woe to the one who says that he or she is full now. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who laugh now. That doesn't sound right, does it? It doesn't sound right at all. I mean, Jesus did not oppose laughter. And, and you know, you can read Scripture and find, if, if you are kind of in tuned to some of the cultural sort of things, the, the humor of Scripture is often different than the humor of this country and this day and age, but there's plenty of humor in the Bible, some really severe humor that should cause you much laughter as you read it in Old and New Testament both. Of course, the Scripture tells us there's time for tears and there's time for laughter in Ecclesiastes. But I think that this laughter is different. This is a different sort of thing. In verse, verse 21, those who weep now will laugh later. That's a laughter of relief, a laughter of gladness, a laughter of dependence upon God, recognizing that God has brought me to a better place. But this is different laughter. Here, laughter is gloating. It's gloating. The book of Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 7, the writer says this, Jerusalem remembers when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same Greek word here that Luke uses in chapter 6 that you're seeing here. Laughter, it's the same word. They gloated over her. They, they mocked her. It's the same kind of laughter that that comedian would generate so easily among the crowd looking to mock and laugh at the problems of another person. It's... It's gloating. It is, I won and you didn't. That's what this laughter is. And if you find that in your heart, be warned. And then lastly here, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So think of the fourth blessing back in the previous list. When people hate you and exclude you, revile you, spurn your name. Think of that one. And what's the opposite of that one? It's this. It's when all people speak well of you. And how do you, how do you get to the point where all people speak well of you? 
How do you arrive at that coveted spot where you have no enemies and everybody just, everybody loves you, everybody speaks well of you? How do you get there? You get there by telling people what they want to hear. That's what the false prophets did. And this one really should make us maybe more uncomfortable than any of the other woes, I think, in in our place, in our culture, our city, our age. This one should make us really uncomfortable because think of it. How do your neighbors speak of you? You're all nice people. I mean, from what I know of you, you're all really nice people. And I enjoy you. I like you. I speak well of you. But how do your neighbors speak of you? Do they, do they only have good things to say about you and to you? I mean, oftentimes they should. But have you ever broached a subject with them, albeit with gentleness and reverence and respect? Have you ever broached a subject with them that they really didn't want to hear? Something that they needed to hear? Or do you only ever say to them what you think will tickle their ears? You know, sometimes the most loving thing is to say the hardest thing. And Jesus would exhort us to that here. So there are four uncomfortable warnings. But, but again, like the others, don't miss this point. Don't avoid. With the other one, it was don't seek after. But here it's don't avoid. Don't avoid riches and fullness and laughter and popularity. Those things in so many ways are wonderful and good things. Don't avoid those things, but rather when these things do come, if they do, be suspicious of them. Be a little bit concerned and wary and, and wonder and examine your own heart and, and consider if these things perhaps have become replacements for what you most need, a trusting and loving relationship with your Heavenly Father, one by which you are able to walk on the path of discipleship together with and in the church. Now, I'll wrap it up here. Did you notice the connection between these two paths? Luke is showing us something very subtle, and I don't know that he intended to show us this. It's my own recognition of these things. I don't know if this is really what he was after, but I think it's pretty accurate. Where do the four blessings lead in the first part of the list? They lead to the prophets, right? Verse 23, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And where do the four warnings lead? They lead to the false prophets. Verse 26, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You heard earlier this morning that reading from Deuteronomy 18, the distinction between the true prophet, Jesus, and all false ones. And the distinction was this from Moses. He said, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, then it is a word the Lord has not spoken. I love the simplicity of that. Isn't that beautiful? If the prophet presumes to speak in the name of the Lord, and yet what he says never happens, it wasn't from God. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? There's a lot of common sense to that. The opposite of it is not necessarily true. Just because a prophet says it and it happens doesn't mean that it came from God. He might have just got lucky. But Moses is clear. There's a distinction between a true prophet and a false prophet. And the poetic part about it is is this. Moses came down from a mountain with the words of God written on stone for his people. With the glory of God showing on his face so bright they couldn't look at him. And now here Jesus has come down from a mountain with the words of God 
on his lips. With the glory and the power of God coming not just from his face, but from his whole body, they all long to touch him because they were healed immediately. And he comes and he tells the truth. The blessed life is the hard one in this broken world. So heed the warnings and rejoice in the blessings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O oh Lord our God, we give you thanks for how you bless us and warn us. How, Lord, you are clear as a loving Father that you love your sons and daughters and that you want good for them, that you call them to follow you and trust you, and that at the same time that also means that you call us with warnings and you would deter us by the work of your Spirit from danger. Father, would you do that for us even now on this day as we walk away with your word, trusting you more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.